This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hello, dear Amicus listener. Thank you so much for joining us. And because I like you, here's a little tip. If you join our membership program, Slate Plus, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. And you will be supporting our journalism work at the magazine at the same time. So win-win. There is a free trial to be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. Now time for the show. Everybody's focused on the question of whether the president removes Bob Mueller, but they should also be focused on the protection of the deputy attorney general, who is the acting attorney general for purposes of of these investigations. And the president really seems to hate him. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts, the Supreme Court, and the rule of law, or whatever is left of that rule of law thing in these very, very strange times. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts and the law for Slate. And in the next two weeks, the Supreme Court is going to hear the final oral arguments of this term, including the big, big travel ban argument, uh, which we will discuss in great depth on our next show. But if you've been listening to the past couple of shows, you've probably noticed that we've been talking more and more volubly and probably ever more grimly and despondently about the rule of law in the Trump presidency. These have not been, I know, very confidence-inspiring conversations, but they have tended to surface a lot of questions, especially from readers, about the law and the Constitution and checks and balances and executive powers. So this week, with federal agents raiding the home and offices of Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, on Monday, and this ever-increasing drumbeat of threats to fire Robert Mueller or Rod Rosenstein or Jeff Sessions or some combo platter of the three of them coming out of the White House, it doesn't feel like it's an exaggeration to say that we may be uh, quickly getting involved in a slow motion constitutional crisis. Uh, Next week, with the release of James Comey's much-awaited, already best-selling memoir, A Higher Loyalty, which comes out on Tuesday, things are going to get crazier. Early excerpts from the book reveal unbelievable bombshells, including the revelation that John Kelly told Comey he himself was prepared to step down as head of Department of Homeland Security when Comey was fired, and Kelly calling Trump's firing of his FBI director dishonorable. And I guess Comey has uh, also compared Trump to a mob boss in this book. So White House allies are marshalling this huge response to discredit Comey's version of how things went down. And also simmering underneath all of this is the possibility that an already furious and very, very reckless president could use the whole Comey book as a pretext for just terminating the Mueller probe. 
this is not an unserious moment to be quite anxious. And so joining us to discuss this moment is one of the people I most have wanted to talk to about it, and that's Ben Wittes. He is the editor of the Lawfare blog. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has written several books, and he is a friend of James Comey's. And if you have not been reading Lawfare this past year, you have probably been missing some of the most important legal thinking around what is happening to the rule of law at this time. So, Ben, with that huge windup, welcome to Amicus. Thanks. I don't I don't know how I could possibly live up to that introduction. Um, uh, uh, But I will uh, say that I am delighted to be here because this is one of my favorite podcasts. And as you know, Dahlia, uh, you have uh, been one of my favorite writers uh, in this space for a very long time, uh, long before it was cool. And so it's really fun to be here. Well, good. Um, I think you probably, if you've been listening to the last couple shows, Ben, you've heard Bob Bauer make me a little nervous and then Walter Dellinger make me more nervous. And I'm hoping... uh, I'm going to outdo both of them. They both pulled punches in the making you nervous department, and I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna do that. Oh, good. So as we tape, we have been waiting pretty much all week uh, for the thing that's meant to happen, whatever the conflagration is. It still hasn't happened. Uh, ben, as of this podcast, can you tell me why hasn't he fired Rod Rosenstein already? That's like asking. You know, why hasn't, you know, the pink elephant shown up and danced a tap dance, right? I mean, firing Rod Rosenstein would be a, a vile, despicable and irrational act. And so it's a funny thing that we're all sitting here expecting for him to do something that we all don't want him to do and we would all think would be a terrible thing to do. And yet we expect it. And so why hasn't it happened? I, the first question we should ask is, why Why would it happen? There's no good reason for it. The only reason we all seem to expect it is that he seems to be threatening to do it and ginning up talk radio or, or uh, Fox News to call for it. Um, so I don't know why it would happen, and I also don't know why it hasn't happened. Let's start uh, by talking about that Michael Cohen raid. It feels like it was 150 years ago, but in fact, it was Monday. Is Michael Cohen going to flip? Is he in enough trouble now that he rolls on the president? And it seems to me that the gravity of his legal situation is such that, and and I don't know if you agree with the, the theory that the Scooter Libby pardon is just a way of saying, not to worry, Manafort, not to worry, Cohen, you're all good. But that's that's what that's what we're wondering, right? That's what America's trying to figure out is 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 how high you can turn up the heat on Michael Cohen. Is he going to go to jail for Donald Trump? So I think there's a few questions there. Let's hold aside Scooter Libby for a second, because I actually think that may be about something else. So one question is, is Michael Cohen in very deep trouble? And the answer to that question is clearly yes. Uh, the second question is, is he uh, going to be willing to flip? And that is, of course, a question that you can't possibly answer without knowing his psychological 
uh, uh, proclivities. He has certainly said publicly on repeated occasions that he is, you know, the ultimate Trump loyalist. He would rather jump out of a building than than turn on Trump. And you know how much of that is his deepest soul, and how much of that is uh, uh, bravado, and how much of that is just signaling to Trump for purposes of pardon purposes that he's, uh, you know, on the team. Uh, I don't think we know, and I don't think we will know until such time as he is uh, squeezed and either capitulates or doesn't. I, I guess I have to pause now and say um, I have long been an unfortunate purveyor of the Steve Breyer four-part nested question, and and Ben, you're the first person who's ever called me out for it. Um, so in the seven-part question that I asked you, I'd love for you to circle back uh, to Scooter Libby. What's your theory? Okay, so my theory is that this is just an elaborate way of trolling Jim Comey, because Scooter, <laughs> Scooter Libby was prosecuted by Pat Fitzgerald, who is right. uh, one of Comey's you know, very closest confidants, and who was appointed as special prosecutor, special counsel in, this, in what the Valerie Plame matter by then-Deputy Attorney General Jim Comey. And so in certain parts of the right-wing fever swamp, uh, Jim Comey is forever blamed uh, for what happened to Scooter Libby. And you'll see them tied together uh, on a semi-regular basis in, uh, you know, there's this idea that this grave injustice was done to Scooter Libby and it was all the fault of, of Jim Comey because he appointed his friend Pat Fitzgerald and the one element of truth to that is that Jim Comey and Pat Fitzgerald are friends, and Pat Fitzgerald was appointed by Jim Comey and did prosecute Scooter Libby. And so I think the, uh, the fact that as Jim's book is coming out, the White House, you know, sends the, the, reminds everybody that the president has the pardon power by pardoning somebody who they think it will kind of get under Jim's skin. Uh, I think it's a kind of form of trolling, to be honest. I think it was reported uh, also this week among the breaking news stories that Steve Bannon has this elaborate plan that he's floating to fire Rod Rosenstein and cripple the Mueller probe using some, I don't know, complicated retroactive triple Lutz theory of privilege that maybe, I don't know, he learned at Trump University Law School. Um, can, can you understand what he is proposing? Uh, I know that the White House has sort of blanked this out anyway. They seem to be not super receptive to whatever uh, Bannon is offering. But can can you help listeners understand uh, what it is that Bannon is, is proposing in terms of silencing? So I cannot. Okay. Not because, you know, just because it is so incoherent, it seems to involve a retroactive application of executive privilege uh, to conversations that have already taken place between White House witnesses and the special counsel's office. I honestly think it's so goofy that it's not worth anybody's time, except for one thing, which is that the Post reported that he did meet with some White House people to discuss getting rid of uh, Rod Rosenstein. And so the part of it that I do take seriously is not the retroactive assertion of executive privilege part, but the 
part that it does seem to fit into uh, a larger pattern of some very serious conversations of, about firing Rosenstein. And that, I think, is a terribly serious matter because this would be another corrupt removal of somebody in charge of the Russia investigation for reasons, for the simple reason that he is in charge of the Russia investigation and the president doesn't like the Russia investigation and wants to, uh, wants to shut it down. Rod Rosenstein is somebody about whom my enthusiasm is altogether under control, but he, <laughs> you know, has since appointing Bob Mueller assiduously and honorably protected that investigation. And he has in the content, in the Cohen matter uh, has, you know, really behaved in a, in a, a straight shooting and dignified fashion with respect to taking responsibility for you know, supervising the management of that between the Mueller probe and the Southern District of New York, which is handling uh, aspects of that matter. And so I think, you know, the idea that, um, you know, everybody's focused on the question of whether the president removes Bob Mueller, and rightly so, but they should also be focused on the protection of, of the deputy attorney general, who is, you know, the acting attorney general for purposes of, of these investigations. And, you know, the president really seems to hate him um, and really wants to get rid of him. And, and that's a dangerous situation and it's potentially a very combustible situation. So so that's a nice segue to the other very combustible situation, which is the Comey book, uh, which drops on Tuesday. But uh, I think everybody's read now. I guess I have to ask you, have you read it? I have not read it. Um, I... Uh, have read the news stories about the about it from the various news organizations that have um, uh, obtained early copies and violated the embargo, but I have not read it myself. This is a side of uh, James Comey. I mean, you know him well, uh, but I think that the public James Comey, you know, the the sort of straight shooting uh, uh, man of honor, uh, is is clearly. Pissed, I think, is the legal word. And, you know, there's language that's leaked. You know, this president is unethical, untethered to the truth, untethered to institutional values. There's a comparison to, uh, you know, Comey's time investigating the mob in New York. He talks about the similarity to uh, the Trump administration, quote, the silent circle of assent, the boss in complete control, the loyalty oaths, the us versus them worldview, the lying about all things, large and small, in service to some code of loyalty that put the organization above morality and above the truth. Uh, you know, Comey paints, a, at least according to the the what's been leaked, pretty vivid picture of an incurious, narcissistic, not very knowledgeable person who I think uh, one of the lines that really spoke to me was, uh, you know, he's built a, quote, cocoon of alternative reality around the people in the room with him. Um, is this a definitive recitation of the case against Donald Trump or is this just punching back hard? Well, so first of all, I mean, it's not new. Um, that Jim feels this way. And, um, you know, when I decided 
uh, shortly after he was fired uh, to describe publicly the my interactions with him while he was in office on this subject. You know, if you go back to that article, which, you know, I, I talked on the record to the New York Times about it, and then I wrote it up in a long lawfare post about my conversations with Jim, um, the tone of what I described at the time is exactly what you're describing now about the book, which is, you know, a sense of these as highly dishonorable people who have no respect for, for the traditional uh, role of federal law enforcement or the relationship between federal law enforcement and the White House, uh, and who, um, you know, are behaving in an entirely self-interested and institutionally destructive fashion. And all of that was, you know, very clear to me that Jim felt that way in, I last saw him before he was fired in late March of last year. And, you know, I walked out of that lunch, no doubt in my mind that he felt this way. And, you know, to the point that I could go to the New York Times, you know, a couple months later and describe these conversations and, you know, with a hundred percent confidence that this was how he felt. And so, you know, I think the, and, and look, when he spoke before the Senate intelligence committee, these feelings came, were, were very, uh, you know, very clear at the time then too. And so, you know, I don't think it is new that he feels this way. Incidentally, when I talked to the New York times to Mike Schmidt, uh, I was on the record the whole time. The only time I went off the record was to compare Donald Trump to a mob boss. And then I called him back later and said, no, you can use that too. This was not a comparison that I had had explicitly with Comey at any time to my, in my memory. But, he, you know, but we both reacted to the things that he was talking about with that as an obvious metaphor. And so I thought it was really interesting that it showed up explicitly. Look, Jim is very angry and he is a, a, a genial, good-natured person. He's a genuinely lovely person. And uh, he is furious at what, was, what the president has done uh, to the organization and the people of the organization that he led. And, you know, he spent four months uh, or five months uh, trying to be the shield that protected the organization from this person. And, you know, when he was dismissed... He was dismissed in a fashion that he never even got a chance to say goodbye. Um, you know, people, he never went, he was never allowed back in the building. Um, and there are a lot of people in that building who feel close to him. And so if you're detecting anger, it's because it's there. If you're detecting thorough contempt and uh moral disregard 
for the people with whom he had to interact in that period of time in the White House and in the president's circle. I'm, I'm sure that's because you're reading the situation correctly. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So, so, so maybe I want to try to ask the same question in a starker way. And I think I want to frame it in the sort of Michelle Obama moral frame of when they go low, you go high. I'm just thinking about, you know, the leaked line about, you know, Donald Trump's hands and his hair and like, you know, the the, the white patches under his eyes from the tanning booth goggles. And I'm I'm just trying to figure out whether this attempt to thread the needle between, you know, staying high, uh, you know, continuing to be and I completely agree with you, the the honorable uh, occasionally in error, but I think striving to do the right thing for law enforcement, Jim Comey, with the Jim Comey who's just like taking some cheap shots, Ben. <laughs> is he is he uh, playing into the White House's story that they want to tell about, you know, this is just an aggrieved, corrupt guy who uh, wanted to make a bunch of money and cash in. And he's saying nasty stuff about the president because he is a liberal. Well, so look, as to whether the book takes cheap shots, that I can't answer because I haven't read the book. Right. And so I, you know, I don't I don't know whether there are a few, a lot, some, or no passages of the book that I'll read and cringe and say, oh, I wish he hadn't done that. I do not think it is a cheap shot for Jim Comey to tell his story. There are parts of this story that when he was fired, I thought it was very important came out. And I thought it was so important that I went and made sure it came out. Uh, and mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. am very glad he is telling the rest of it, both the parts of it that I know and the parts of it that I don't know. And there's, you know, a lot of it that I, that I don't know. Um, I don't think that's a cheap shot at all, but I do think in your question, there is this other embedded question, which is, should we as a society not respond you know, when the president does, says horrible things, lies about people, should we, should we, as in Trump's language, counterpunch, right? Or should we, mm -hmm. you know, turn the other cheek? And, um, and so I have a mixed position on that, which is I don't believe in, you know, rhetoric as a, you know, Trump called in a tweet called Jim a slime ball. I don't believe it's a good idea for Jim, for example, to respond to that with, no, you're a slime ball, right? I don't think you should play the president's game. 
On the other hand, I do think somebody has to stand up for the institution of the FBI and for federal law enforcement. And, you know, the president is lying about individuals. He's lying about institutions. He's creating an environment in which uh, I can't imagine why anybody would want to cooperate with the FBI who believes on anything, who believes the president, right? Um, and I think somebody needs to stand up publicly early and often and say, these are lies. And here's the truth. Here's what happened. And to stand, be willing to confront the president about those lies. And I do think you have to do it in a dignified way. But I think the failure to do it, the refusal to do it, is demoralizing to the institution. And I look, I think Chris Ray is a good, decent man, and I think he's in an impossible position. Um, but it bothers me that he does not stand up and talk about the FBI in public. Um, and so I don't know where the right balance is, but I am personally glad that Jim is telling his story. It's so interesting that you're saying that as you're saying it, Ben, I'm reflecting on the year that I've spent wishing that the federal judiciary would respond, you know, when Trump goes after judges by name or calls them so-called judges or, uh, you know, discredits the entire Ninth Circuit and that stoic silence that the judiciary has to affect in order to, you know, maintain all the values you're describing, you know, dignity and decorum and seriousness of purpose and sobriety of uh, mind. All of that means that these tweets go unanswered. I, I The other thing that's so interesting to me listening to you is, you know, you started this podcast talking about, you know, Donald Trump in this endless feedback loop, like he is the president is talking only to Fox News and Fox News is talking to him. And, you know, that's the totality of the world. And then there's this ironic way in which the president is, is communicating via Twitter and Jim Comey is communicating via, you know, several hundred page book. And there's just such a deeply weird way in which the entirety of, you know, the constitutional crisis we're in is being expressed in media, in, in rhetoric and media. And it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you on a podcast. I realize, uh, the, the, the meta-ness of that observation, but there's such a strange, way in which this is all uh, being done, it's it's almost as though Jim Comey is saying, like, I see your 140 characters and raise you, you know, 400 and whatever pages. Uh, but it is just, I, I'm trying to think of an analog. You know, you raise the issue of the silence of the federal judiciary. Uh, let me, you know, let me see you that and raise you the silence of federal law enforcement. Because, uh, the president of the United States said in public that he thought that when police arrest somebody, they shouldn't be too gentle when they put him in the car, right? And they should rough him up a bit while putting him in the car. And the attorney general of the United States had nothing to say about that in response. And the deputy attorney general of the United States had nothing to say about that in response. And actually, at the time, the FBI leadership had nothing to say about it in response. 
the highest ranking law enforcement official of the United States to say anything about it was the acting director of the DEA, uh, Chuck Rosenberg, who uh, responded by writing a letter to the DEA staff saying, we don't behave that way. Um, Now, you know, I think that there is um, a much greater danger to senior law enforcement not speaking right now than there is to senior law enforcement speaking. And so will I prefer to read the book and find not one sentence that I wish had not been in there or worded differently, whatever? Yeah, I will feel better if there is like not one thing that I can fault. Uh, It's a 300-page book. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that were not the case. But I do think that the much greater risk than Jim Comey uh, uh, being Comey Comey unleashed is uh, that he would have, you know, not told the story of what happens, of, of what happened in that period of time, which after all is a period of time in which President of the United States did extraordinarily evil and dangerous things in his interactions with federal law enforcement. So I, I do think when we get the T-shirts made, if we all survive the weekend, uh, it will just the theme of this moment will be you engage with Trump at your peril and you don't engage with Trump at your peril. And everybody finds their lane in which to try to sort out that paradox. I, I think before we leave Comey, I have to ask you one other question, and that is. And I don't know if if James Comey bears the responsibility for thinking about this, but there's certainly a non-trivial possibility that uh, the release of this book will affect uh, whatever happens in the Mueller investigation. It could lead us to uh, drop missiles on Syria. I mean, there could be the kind of conflagration uh, that you and I can't even begin to imagine uh, when the president gets angry about this. Is that something that Comey needs to answer for? You mean, does he need to answer for the bear's reaction when poked? Yeah, that's we call that blaming the victim. But I I, I just (laughs) uh, the stakes are crazy high. I do think the mere asking of that question shows that we are all like at this point, spousal abuse victims, right? <laughs> uh, because because that's the that's the question. You know, was it my fault because I upset him? Um, you know, this is the president of the United States in a democracy, and you know, one of the things about Article Two of the Constitution, which starts with the words that all of the executive power is in the hands of a single person. You know, the executive power of the United States shall be vested in a president of the United States. When you say that, that means the responsibility for the exercise of the executive power is not in the hands of the former FBI director. Fair enough. enough. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know. The Constitution does answer this question. You know, in a democracy, when after a two year campaign, 
the people get the leadership they elect and they generally elect the people they deserve. And if we are looking to blame former officials for speaking the truth as for the results of the behavior of the officials that we elect um, to do jobs, uh, we are asking, we're asking the wrong question at the wrong point in time. Fair. I think fair enough. Uh, the White House is <laughs> mounting and, and the RNC is mounting this massive campaign uh, to discredit Comey in advance of the release of the book. Uh, my By far, my favorite line of argument is he's just doing this for the money, um, say the kleptocrats. Uh, but 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 is there uh, any claim that is being advanced? I mean, it, uh, you know, and, and again, stop, pause, reflect on the fact that they are going after a lifelong Republican, uh, you know, and other lifelong Republicans uh, who have served the country honorably. Uh, but but is there any part of this counteroffensive that strikes you as worrisome or capable of uh, turning public opinion against uh, Jim Comey next week? So look, first of all, Jim Comey, who was the general counsel of Lockheed Martin and then Bridgewater, which is the world's largest hedge fund, <laughs> message doesn't need the money. Um, <laughs> you know, like one thing this is not about is money. Uh, but um, look, it, the at GOP uh, Twitter feed is on a full-bore campaign against, as you point out, a lifelong Republican, uh, former you know, career law enforcement official who's had numerous uh, appointments in Republican administrations. Um, it is completely silly. Um, it is undignified. Um, and... Uh, propaganda works. Um, and I am sure there are a lot of people who will be reasonably persuaded that the problem is that, you know, Jim Comey is a lying leaker who, uh, um, whose lifelong ambition in getting involved in Republican politics was to protect Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't, know what you can do about that other than um, tell the truth um, and um, assume that the number of people that such a campaign can convince is not um, is not as much as many people as the truth will persuade um, that said, of course, it's of concern that a major organ of our political life is going on a deliberate campaign of lies and that a, a set of associated media entities are devoted to amplifying those lies. And by the way, it's not just Jim. The transformation of Bob Mueller into... Uh, on Sean Hannity's show, the head of a criminal enterprise. Um, 
I, you know, would not have thought we were capable as a society of doing things like this. Um, but, and I do think there's going to have to be a reckoning for it somehow. Uh, I have always disliked, uh, advert, you know, going after people's advertisers. Um, but I have to say that when, uh, when that, uh, Parkland shooting survivor, uh, uh, went after Laura Ingram's, uh, advertisers and, I, I thought that was actually pretty good. Um, and I think, you know, we have to think about what the, what the, what the business consequences of having organizations that are overtly devoted to lying for a living. This isn't a just, this isn't principally about Jim. It's about the entire ecosystem right now. Um, a world in which, a world in which you know, the fundamental problem is the people investigating the president and his coterie's misconduct rather than the misconduct itself. And I do think we have to think about what the, what the, what the economics of that ecosystem look like and, you know, how in a First Amendment culture it is appropriate as a society, probably not as a you know, it's not a matter of law. It's a matter of our, our interactions with those entities. But we, you know, it's a very serious problem. I, I'm glad you, you, you're sort of ending up there because I think, you know, for me and so much so in this era and on this podcast, you know, the dividing line has not been ideological as much as, as truth-based and fact-based. And um, I think it's, because the law in the end of the day is so completely and profoundly shaped by presumptions of truth and of good faith, uh, it's really hard to kind of exist in a in a universe in which not only is there no truth, but there's this presumption that truth is unknowable, uh, that it's all just, you know, the president just kind of generally feels as though, you know, there was vote fraud. And that's substitutes for actual demonstrable fact. And I think you're you're quite right that the valence of truth seeking is is inherently corrupt and bad if we don't like uh, the target of the inquiry. I think that's it, it's so uh, dangerous. I, I think the last question I want to ask you your long post about what will happen if Rod Rosenstein uh, is, in fact, uh, fired in the coming days uh, up at Lawfare, and we, we can link to it. Uh, you make the point that I feel that I'd been making since the Merrick Garland uh, uh, nomination, which is we can't keep talking about this as though it's a legal problem. This is a political problem. Uh, if Rod Rosenstein is fired, we can talk all day about the legalities and and uh, that's not important. What's important is, will people care? So look, I know I'm going to come off as sounding like a crazy lefty when I say this. And I ben also, is not a crazy lefty. Uh, a not a crazy lefty. Yeah, <laughs> that I've been accused of many things in my life. And um, until recently, nobody has ever accused me of being a crazy lefty. Um, but look, this is, you know, this is a legal podcast. And uh, 
you know, in the legal community, we tend to think about legal remedies for things. This is not a fundamentally a legal problem. It is fundamentally a moral and political problem. And the core of the problem is, is it okay to have a president who behaves this way? Is it okay to have a president who removes the deputy attorney general because he doesn't like an investigation that that deputy attorney general is supervising and because he really wants the Justice Department to investigate his political opponents? Now, there is no law that says that that's not okay. Um, there is a, there is a many decades of normative assumption about decency and the way a president is supposed to behave and not supposed to behave that says that it's not okay. And that can change. And the way it changes is if people defy those expectations and then they don't pay a price. So here's the bottom line. I don't, you know, the bottom line is if the president fires Rod Rosenstein or Bob Mueller, and there is not a devastating political consequence for that, then that is a way of saying in our political system, it is okay to engage with federal law enforcement on an openly corrupt basis. And I don't accept that. And that means that faced with a president who engages with federal law enforcement on an openly corrupt basis, I look for political levers to respond to that. I know of three. One is Congress. Congress is not shrouding itself in confidence-building robes right now. Um, I remain hopeful that eventually uh, people will wake up and do something, but I'm not confident of that at all, and I don't think anybody else should be either. The second is elections. If the president does not face a devastating political defeat in November, we will be saying that this is okay. And the third is, you know, organic expression of political discontent, that is to say protests. And, you know, if Rod Rosenstein or Bob Mueller gets fired, people should turn out in the streets. Um, because there needs to be an immediate feedback mechanism. The courts will not do anything. They can't. Um, and with all due respect to my dear friend Steve Vladek and the others who are pushing the idea of a kind of Mueller protection bill in Congress, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, it's not going to pass. You know, and if it passes, the president will veto it. And if he vetoed, if he, even if it somehow makes it into law, it still wouldn't really prevent him from doing something. Um, the much more immediate question is, if it happens, will people make clear that this is not okay? That is fundamentally not a legal issue. It's not even a legal question. It's a, it's a political question, and it's a moral and spiritual question. Ben Wittes, uh, I should say, is uh, in my list of the top 17 most temperate people in America. Uh, so I, I do uh, 
take those words very much to heart. Ben is the editor of the Lawfare blog, which should be bookmarked uh, listeners, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a friend of James Comey's, and somebody who has, I know because he's really tired, uh, been working unbelievably hard for the past year and a half to translate what happens in the world of law and national security for those of us who don't understand it as he does. Ben, I I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks for having me and uh, keep it up. And with that, we are all done uh, with this edition of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is, as always, amicus at slate.com. We really love your letters. Thank you. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And a special shout out to Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where today's show was recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. In two weeks, we will be back with another episode of Amicus. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. Amicus.